Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to the Curious Neuron Podcast. My name is Cindy Huffington, and I'm your host. And today is a holiday here in Montreal, Canada, and many other places. And I wanted to make sure that we kept in touch. I want to post every single Monday. So I'm trying something new. I'm posting or reposting um, an encore presentation, which is the most downloaded episode that we've had in the past three seasons, which is the episode with Lily Nichols. This was focused on nutrition, and it is still so relevant and important. Almost a year later, my conversation with her, um, it doesn't matter whether you are pregnant right now in the postpartum phase, uh, a mom or a dad, uh, you know, have a 10 year old child. This conversation around nutrition and real food is really an important one for us to understand what is in the food that we are eating and how can we satisfy our body by giving it what it needs. Before I move on to today's episode, I would like to take a moment to thank the Tannenbaum Open Science Institute here in Montreal at the Neuro uh, for supporting the Curious Neuron podcast. And um, if you would like to follow Curious Neuron on Instagram, you could join us at Curious underscore Neuron. We have daily posts um, about parenting information. I cover research. We have some polls now that we've been doing with the audience. Um, so you could come to join the, con- the conversation or learn something new every day that you can apply in your home right away. If you are enjoying the Curious Neuron podcast, please take a moment to uh, click out of this episode right now and to click uh, on the review and rating of this podcast, the Curious Neuron podcast. Leave a review and a rating and send me a screenshot or send me an email. Let me know that you did it and I will send you one of the PDFs that we have on our um, website, on our shop website, um, where you could learn about potty training and the science behind it. Or I have one about tantrums and there's this visual that you could print and leave on your fridge and help your child understand their emotions. There's an emotional toolbox that comes with it. I will send it to you for free um, if you send me a screenshot and leave a review and rate the Curious Neuron podcast. So thank you. And lastly, you can visit our website at curiousneuron.com to read a blog post, to also um, click on a research lab and join a research study for your child or for yourself. We have a list there under the free resources. And you can also visit the Curious Neuron Academy where there are courses and PDFs that you can purchase to help you with your parenting journey. And lastly, on the website, I've added this new section on the main page. There is a tab there where you could answer surveys that I've been Um, posting on Instagram, but I've decided to put them on the website as well so that everybody can join in. And the more data that I collect, obviously, it looks so much better. We can really understand each other as parents and feel seen if we think that we're the only ones going through something. So I figured instead of just having it under these 24-hour stories on Instagram, let's create them and, and keep them there for us to feel seen. And you can visit this on the Curious Neuron website. All right, let's not keep you waiting anymore. Here is the conversation that Marion and I had with Lily Nichols. Please enjoy. Hi, Lily. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, appreciate the invite. I'm excited to talk about this topic because we're we're discussing real food and I know I I'm sure we can all agree that, you know, when I'm thinking back to my three pregnancies and the the doctor would always tell me eat well. <laughs> and right. and he would he would weigh me and that's where it would end. <laughs> and, you know, I I think it's important for us to have this conversation because there's so much more to a good diet than just the calories that we count sometimes. And you really get into the details of that in your work. Um, so I'm really excited to talk about all that. Great. 
Before we begin, I'd like to have a bit more of an understanding of who you are and how you came about all this sort of research and, and your own research as well uh, to, you know, put this all into your book. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit more about your background in, in, in as a dietitian and your research? Sure. Yeah. So I really, for the majority of my career, I've worked in the prenatal space um, pretty heavily on the gestational diabetes side, but also with, you know, uncomplicated pregnancies as well. And it was really in those roles where I was implementing conventional guidelines and seeing how they worked in clinical practice. And that made me start to go, hmm, maybe there is something we could do better here hmm. um, and really start diving into the research on, you know, how the guidelines were set, how, what, what the status of the research is these days, does it continue to support the guidelines or not? Um, where are the gaps? How can we do better? Uh, and so you know, after many years in practice and the you know public policy side with the state of California's diabetes and pregnancy program to clinical practice, to consulting on research projects and teaching other professionals. I mean, really seeing this field from all these different angles is what, you know, led to the writing of um, both of my books, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes was the first one and Real Food for Pregnancy is the second one. Um, and it's really just, you know, I, I, maybe on the good side and maybe on the bad side as well, have, have a bit of an understanding on how challenging it is for um, public policy to change. I mean, just mm -hmm. to get research into clinical practice, the, the data says it takes about 17 years for that to happen. And then it's even longer for <laughs> actual guidelines to change. And so um, I sort of came to the conclusion that it might be best for me to approach this from a grassroots level, like let me give the information to mothers to be and their providers and let people decide for themselves what they want to do with that information. And maybe that'll mm. like lead to a change in policy, you know, later on or not, but <laughs> it seemed um, unfair and arguably unethical for me to withhold that information because the guidelines said different. So I, I find a lot of my work is kind of bridging the gap between research and getting that in the hands of, you know, people on the ground. I think that's what people appreciate the most really is, is when somebody takes that time to go into the research and to summarize it for them. And, and it was interesting when I was looking at your book and the, at, right from the beginning, you mentioned that you can't support the conventional guidelines. And I was looking at the, you, you contrast the conventional guidelines and what you would recommend. And there was one that really stood out to me because with my being naive and not understanding this, the, you know, all this information behind the diet and the nutrients, I saw as a snack, um, you know, trail mix. And then I saw your contrast and I was like, okay, this, this makes sense, but why? <laughs> Can you right. explain certain parts of the guidelines and what stood out to you as you know, something that you can support and, you know, with regards yeah. to diet? Yeah. And I mean, nothing against trail mix um, in particular. <laughs> that was arguably, I'm going to open up the, that meal plan right now. Um, that's arguably of the three snacks they offer um, a little more nutritionally balanced because at least they have some almonds alongside their dried fruit. But the other <laughs> yeah. snacks were carrot slices and whole wheat crackers. Yes. And the bedtime snack was air popped popcorn. <laughs> um, so the issue here really is a matter of nutrient. There's a lot of mm. issues, but the, the main one that I like to focus on 
is micronutrients. So I think we have the strongest research on micronutrient requirements on pregnancy. Obviously, there's still gaps because there's ethical dilemmas on studying, you know, nutrient deprivation mm-hmm. in human pregnancies. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> that is uh, who's going to sign up for that study. Um <laughs> However, I think we have some of the stronger data on like, okay, we know we need these micronutrients um, in these amounts at minimum, although we have some data, you know, questioning if we might need even higher concentrations of them. And here's where we find them in food. Mm. And interestingly, the conventional guidelines specifically steer women away from eating some of the most nutrient dense foods. Um, often because there's some assumptions about macronutrients, fat, carbohydrate, and protein, you know, we need to eat those in these specific amounts or ratios. And therefore, you know, you shouldn't have much red meat because, oh gosh, the saturated fat. Um, Meanwhile, red meat is like a major source of highly absorbable iron and zinc and B12 and choline and vitamin B6 and just a whole slew of nutrients that are really vital to a healthy pregnancy. And if Mm. you run a nutrient analysis on a plan that specifically omits high fat or high cholesterol foods or just animal foods, because for whatever reason we've deemed they are not healthy, um, you end up with serious deficits in Mm. the amount of nutrients that are provided. So my lens from looking at this, um, like I said, I mean, I started mostly in the gestational diabetes field. So first of all, like my, you know, questioning of like, does this make sense started at the macronutrient level, specifically on carbohydrates. Do we really need to push a high carbohydrate diet on women with gestational diabetes, which is carbohydrate intolerance of pregnancy. Okay. Um, but then later led into even deeper layers of like, okay, but what about this micronutrient? What about this vitamin and mineral and, and so on. And so my approach is to reverse engineer a prenatal diet that meets those nutrient needs as much as you can from food. Um, I'm not anti-supplements, but if we go back even a hundred years, we did not have supplemental forms of most of these nutrients that are Mm -hmm. vital to a healthy pregnancy. And yet the human race somehow survived, right? So (laughs) how were women getting these nutrients in? I mean, it's food. Um, So I take a bit of like, okay, the, the, the like white paper data on these specific nutrients say this, but I also take a look, you know, from an ancestral perspective on which foods were promoted in different cultures, you know, ideally looking at these cultures prior to the globalization of the food supply and all that, um, as best you can. And like, why might those foods have been important? You know, Mm. like uh, how, again, how do we fill these nutrient gaps and do it with food as much as possible? And that's really, um, how I come to the conclusions that I do. Um, and in addition, of course, providing some clinical context on that as well, because you pretty clearly see what works and what doesn't work in real life. You know, sometimes, you know, researchers who are just, you know, lab researchers get a little bit, um, they kind of have blinders on, right. It's like Mm. you're driving your car and you have like the side windows blocked out and you're only seeing what's in front of you because that's only what you've experienced. And when you work clinically with real life people, you have much different experiences because you find that like, whoa, these guidelines actually don't work or this client is the (laughs) exception to the rule. And oh my gosh, client 
three, four, five, six, and seven are also the exception to the rule. So what's going on here? Um, it just gives you a bit of a different perspective as well. Let's dive deeper a little bit into you know nutrients and micronutrients for somebody who's listening who might not really know what we're talking about when we say those when we use those terms. Um, and then also in that, I, in case I forget, I, I think a misconception maybe that we have is when we take a multivitamin, we get pregnant. We you know we we were told to take that multivitamin. Everything is good now. Every day I can have chicken wings <laughs> and right. and whatever I want in the ice cream. But I, I'm taken care of because I'm taking that vitamin. <laughs> and we could perhaps tie that all in. But um, what are we talking about when we we were saying micronutrients? Yeah, so you can broadly break down nutrients into macro and micronutrients. Like macro meaning large, you need large amounts of them, and micro meaning you need small amounts of them. Um, but furthermore, macronutrients are the ones that provide you energy, like the calories that your body uses to produce energy versus micronutrients aren't necessarily giving you energy directly, but they might be involved in your metabolic health and, and you know, the, the, the function of your, your, of your, you know, cells generating mm -hmm. capacity to turn that those fat carbohydrates and protein into usable energy. And, yeah. um, so with your macronutrients, you're looking at mainly fat, carbohydrates, and protein. Arguably, you can also add alcohol to the mix because it adds calories. But in the context mm. of pregnancy, <laughs> that's a moot point. Um, and then micronutrients are vitamins and minerals primarily. Um, you can arguably include some other nutrients that don't necessarily fit in the category of vitamins because maybe they were identified after we had named the major vitamins, but they're other important nutrients. Um, and then as far as I think you were asking about, um, were you asking about real food? Like what I mean when I'm talking about real food? I'm trying Oh, to yes. And that too. Out. Yeah. Um, oh, you were talking about, does it like, does a prenatal cover you and everything else is fine? Yeah. So, so let's, yeah, exactly. To make that point first. Um, yes. So unfortunately, very few doctors receive much training in nutrition. So here's a stat I throw around. Only a quarter of accredited U.S. medical schools require a dedicated nutrition course. Um, mm -hmm. And if they do, it's often like a single three credit course. So like a single college class equivalent. Um, meanwhile, dietitians take four years of school plus a year dietetic internship. I mean, we're doing Yeah, our, our education is by no means um, comparable in rigor to, a, you know, a doctor's training. Um, but in terms of the nutrition side, we have a heck of a lot more than one three credit class. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so it's a bit, I mean, there's a reason we have specialties in the health field because mm -hmm. there's some, you know, clinicians who specialize in one part of the body or whatnot or one disease Um, and then there's other people who specialize on the nutrition side. So if you're just going to your doctor, OBGYN, um, for advice on nutrition, and they just say like, okay, take your prenatal and don't drink alcohol. And, you know, this sort of blank, like eat healthy, whatever, yeah, however exactly. you want to interpret that, um, that doesn't really give you with a whole lot to go off of, um, I would say for the clients who do receive prenatal nutrition advice, it's often just a pamphlet of uh, don't eat these foods because uh, mm -hmm. they might be unsafe for, you know, food safety reasons or whatnot. Yeah. So it just doesn't really give you much to go off of. 
And having actually worked on prenatal guidelines um, in the context of gestational diabetes and really like there's just so much more depth that they could mm-hmm. cover that they don't. Um, I, I think just sort of in, in just general practice, there's a bit of a default to try to like make things as simplistic as possible. Um, but it's really interesting how certain things are decided to like be, you know, emphasized as being super important and other things are not mentioned yeah. at all. <laughs> so <laughs> when, when I, um, you know, I hesitated to write Real Food for Pregnancy because I had already released a book on gestational diabetes. I mean, I I really strongly believe, you know, blood sugar management is helpful for everyone across the board, but especially in pregnancy. So you can really apply that same advice to an uncomplicated pregnancy. Um, And I was like, no, I really don't want to write this book. But every time I'd pick up a prenatal nutrition (laughs) book, it was just so watered down, you know, and I knew the questions that I had during my pregnancy. Um, at the time I wrote it, I only had, um, one baby and I was like, I got to just, I got to like write this down (laughs) really, you know, no one had done it. And the more you dive into all these different topics, say the foods to avoid, you just, um, unload a huge amount of controversy and, Hmm. most people just don't want to touch this topic with a 10 foot pole because God forbid you come, you come out with something that's different than the guidelines and people get hurt. I mean, Hmm. that's like seriously horrible. And, and on the legal side, like a Hmm. (laughs) serious liability. So there's, you know, there's a reason there's so many references. Um, But nonetheless, to get back to your question on real food, Hmm. um, you know, like I said, the reason I focus on that is because I think that's, really the direction we need to be thinking about nutrition. We have spent, you know, decades isolating nutrients and trying to look at, you know, okay, if you're missing this, then it'll give you this disease or, or this deficiency symptom or whatever, but it, it doesn't look at food as a whole and nutrients work together in synergy. You don't have a single nutrient or vitamin that doesn't co-interact with others. Um, Mm. and yet food kind of takes care of that for us. You really don't have, have to have a nutrition degree or much know-how to stay decently healthy, um, just eating real food. So what I mean by real food is consuming food as close to its source as possible. Um, ideally if possible grown or raised in conditions that increase the nutrient density. So for example, if you're going to measure the nutrient levels in vegetables, the ones that were picked like in season, right out of the field, delivered to your farmer's market and consumed within a couple of days, those are going to have vastly more nutrients than one that was picked thousands of miles away and took weeks to be shipped to your grocery store. And then it's going to sit there for another week before it's purchased. I mean, nutrient levels just decline in food over time. Um, But in addition, farmers that really like care about their soil health and soil fertility and compost and do biodynamic stuff and have animals on their land. Like you can see the measurable difference in nutrients in the foods they produce animal or plant foods. Um, so that's something that, you know, it becomes again, a bit tricky to talk about because not everybody has access to those foods, but if we're talking optimal, um, which is why people seek out my work, it really comes down to that. There is just a, a, legit difference in (laughs) density in foods based on how they're raised. In addition, there can be a difference um, depending on how things are processed. So the example everyone always throws out is like whole grains or refined grains. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, you take up fiber, B vitamins, and a lot of minerals when you refine them. 
Same goes for animal foods. You know, milk naturally comes from cows or other animals that produce milk with fat. And that fat is there for a reason. It helps you absorb the other nutrients that are in the milk. Eggs Mm -hmm. come with yolks. The yolks have important nutrients in them. Yes, they have cholesterol, which actually shouldn't be a concern for anybody to consume, but it remains in our dietary dogma that cholesterol is quote unquote bad, right? Yes. Yeah. But if you consume only egg whites, you have now omitted like your number one food source of a key nutrient for your placental health and pregnancy and for baby's brain development called choline, right? So there's a reason foods come the way they do. There's a reason there's skin on the chicken and there's a reason there's bones in the animals and all traditional (laughs) cultures ate nose to tail and used all parts of the animals. So I'm really calling out not just, you know, how food is raised or how it's processed, Mm. but like, how can we eat as close to nature as possible and then just receive maximum nutrition as a result? What are some of the micronutrients that we, as you know, as women and, and being pregnant, don't hear enough about and that we should be discussing a lot more? And where can we find these? In which foods can we find these nutrients? Yeah, um, I, I mean, I could choose from any number. Um, <laughs> I will choose uh, at least one to start and we can add more um, pending time. But choline, which I just mm. mentioned, is a huge one. So choline is a B vitamin-like compound that has um, sort of parallel functions or functions alongside with folate. We all know about folate and its importance for the prevention of neural tube defects and promoting brain development. Choline so, um, functions... Sorry, just because you mentioned folate. What is the difference yeah. between folate and folic acid? So folate is an umbrella term that refers to any type of folate that you find in food. And there are like many, many times, I believe over a hundred times, I have to go back to my folate article to give you an exact (laughs) number, but there's many different types of folate. Um, One of them is called folic acid and folic acid is a specifically um, man-made meaning synthetic form Mm. of folate that is found most commonly in supplements and fortified foods. Um, It is uh, absorbed quite readily, but your body does not utilize it super well particularly for people who have certain genetic variations. One that people are talking about more broadly now is called MTHFR. And for people who have a genetic difference in the way their MTHFR enzyme functions, which by the way is about half the population, they don't metabolize folic acid very well. Um, And therefore food sources or getting the active source directly, methylfolate is a far better choice than doing folic acid. Um, I can refer people to a blog post I have on that. If you want to add that to the show notes on folate that goes into um, probably way too much detail on folate, but it's such a common, there's so much misinformation on folate versus folic acid out there that Mm -hmm. that that post had to be written. So good. It's up there. Yeah. Got Um, it. Thank you. (laughs) And I have a separate article on choline as well for people who might want to read that. Um, But so choline, and it was just sorry, is that something um, people should look out for when they're looking for a supplement? I know sometimes uh, s- certain supplements will have folic acid and some have um, a different type of folate. Yeah, in, that- in my opinion, yes. Um, I think it is the safest route to supplement with the form of folate that we know for sure everybody's body can metabolize regardless of their genetics, which would be 
methylfolate. So 98% of the folate in your bloodstream is in the form of methylfolate. In order for your body to convert folic acid into methylfolate, so in order for it to be metabolically worth anything for your body, that conversion needs to happen. And for people who have MTHFR, depending on what type of MTHFR they have, I don't want to get too much in the weeds, that conversion is significantly reduced. So the folic acid is kind of useless. Um, you, you can actually build up what's called unmetabolized folic acid, UMFA. It's in the literature. If people really want to dive into the, the medical <laughs> journals, but you have these high levels of unmetabolized folic acid that are arguably useless or potentially harmful, depending on the research that you're looking at. Um, so yeah, in my opinion, yes, we should be doing methylfolate, um, one of the, and part of that folate article I have goes through why it's not widely available in most prenatal vitamins, like still most of them use folic acid. And there's many different reasons for that, which I go through, but mm -hmm. one of the major ones is cost. It is significantly more expensive than folic acid. Mm -hmm. um, and then in addition to that, there's a, you know, challenge in the, in terms of like how strictly you're, you're sticking to the research in that when they first um, identified folic acid and synthesized it, and they saw how easily it was absorbed because food folates take some extra steps to be absorbed. They thought folic acid was superior to folate in food. Mm -hmm. And so this is why sometimes you'll hear, and again, this is misinformation that um, folic acid is superior because it's absorbed better, but being absorbed doesn't mean anything if your body can't utilize it. So absorption and utilization, that needs to be discussed separately because they're separate issues. So you actually have to look at it from like a biochemical, like look at the biochemistry of how the body metabolizes nutrients. And you have to have some understanding of nutritional genomics and how our genetic polymorphisms impact how we use nutrients, right? Like how many people are willing to do that? Like this is something, again, when you come back to like, okay, the OBs have maybe a three credit class in nutrition, unless they've personally decided to study beyond that. What's in their education is that folic acid is absorbed better and prevents neural tube defects. Done. End of the story. And to some degree, I mean, it's better to have like, if you're talking about somebody who has no access to folate rich foods, I would opt for synthetic folic acid over nothing. Mm -hmm. um, but when you're looking at some of the newer data we have, say on people who have like recurrent miscarriages, for example, um, particularly those with MTHFR, like the success of like assisted reproduction um, and all that is significantly better when you supplement them with the proper form of folate with the methylfolate. Wow. Um, so there's more and more data coming out on it now. There's even like a couple of new studies that I could arguably add to the references on that folate article, mm -hmm. but it is, it is really important. And to get back to the, you know, choline part of the question, yes. choline has been identified to be just as important or possibly more important in the prevention of neural tube defects than folate. Um, so like I said, but it's not in the vitamins, no, it's not in the vitamins, <laughs> in the prenatal. And you know what the main reason for that? Well, a choline is like a new kid on the block. We didn't have a recommended intake of choline until 1998. And the 
guidelines for it for pregnancy were set based on data for adult men and then adjusted via some mathematical estimates what? for pregnancy and breastfeeding. What? Oh so my gosh. Actually, a lot of the nutrients are based <laughs> on that. The first ever study we had on protein requirements um, looking specifically in pregnant women was done in 2015. Okay. And what? like Colleen found there was a huge underestimate in actual um, protein requirements. Wow. So now we have randomized controlled trials, like the highest quality evidence in pregnancy specifically showing that we arguably need more than double the amount of choline than is in our current recommendations. <laughs> wow. I mean, it's just absurd, like how far yeah. off <laughs> it is. Um, and have randomized controlled trials on a specific nutrient showing this level of benefit. I mean, like that's, that's really the highest quality evidence you can get. And most nutrients, we don't have RCTs, um, on for prenatal nutrition. So that's pretty huge. Um, so speaking of choline, where you get it in food. So the, the, this will come back to what I'm talking about with um, you know, we have to be careful about this nutritionism idea of like demonizing one nutrient and therefore we remove certain foods from our diet entirely because choline is a perfect example. So choline is found throughout the food supply, animal and plant foods. However, it's most concentrated in animal foods, especially egg yolks and liver. Those are like the top two sources of choline in the diet by far. So like a single egg yolk has around 120 milligrams of choline. The, you know, if you start looking at plant foods, you know, a half cup of beans has maybe 30 milligrams. Okay. Wow. So you would have to eat two cups of cooked beans. Yum. So that's something that just, it becomes very challenging to meet your choline needs if you're not at the very least consuming eggs and eggs account for about half of the choline intake in most people's diet. Um, the data and you mentioned on, liver. Oh, sorry. Yeah, and then liver. I mean, yeah. not many people like to eat liver and I yeah. do make the case for liver and I do encourage people to incorporate it into their diet, but a lot of people, it's just not going to happen. So really you're <laughs> you have so you have so many good recipes. I love following your Instagram account and seeing the ways you incorporated your hidden liver. Hidden liver. <laughs> I think it's I hidden liver. It's great. You don't our, even taste it. Yeah. I just stopped at our family farm or not my family farm, but a family farm today and picked up some liver to make oh, more pate yeah. to hide, mm. you know, chili and meatloaf <laughs> and other things that you know, you find a way to make it work. And, um, like I say, on a nutritional scale of one to 10, it gets an 11. I mean, it is wow. absolutely, it's just so nutrient dense. You don't have to eat a lot of it to get the benefits. Um, which is why I'm such a big proponent of just hiding small amounts in other dishes. So nobody really like notices and complains. It just sort of enhances the depth of flavor in the dish, but doesn't take taste like liver you know <laughs> so marion used are your children eating liver too uh i've been yeah <laughs> I go i'm in curious phases. i make chopped liver Ooh. so we have a youtube video showing how during the pandemic you know we were home a lot <laughs> so i bought liver from our local food delivery basket and super inexpensive so easy to make we just fried them up and then chopped liver you add actually eggs and wow. some fried onion and you literally just chop it up and it becomes like a pate. And we were dipping crackers. I mean, they took not very much. So I'm the one <laughs> eating it. 
but I think it's good. And uh, and then I in Lily's book and on her Instagram page and her website, she has recipes for um, liver, hidden liver, <laughs> adding it to shepherd, shepherd's pie, just adding it to your meat, right? Yeah, you just add it to your ground meat. So, oh, you know, I, for me now, I, I'm lazy. People think I'm like always cooking. And I mean, I'm co- I do cook. Um, I cook a lot, but I cook in batches to like minimize the amount of time I have to spend in the kitchen yeah, same. or have yeah. to deal with liver. Right. So <laughs> I'm usually only cooking liver. I mean, it depends how big of a batch I'm going to make, but I often make it like a couple times a year or maybe at oh, okay. most every other month. And I will make a batch of pate and then freeze it in either um, an ice cube tray or in like four to eight ounce Mason jars and then incorporate like a cube of liver pate into a dish that has ground meat. Got so it. Okay. If you're and just is that starting, in, that's enough. Yeah. 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 I okay. mean, really, uh, and th- th- that's the thing that I think is like I have to go above and beyond touting the benefits of liver to even get people to be willing to try it. <laughs> that doesn't mean that you need to eat liver every single meal yeah. <laughs> um, or even every single week to to get the benefits. It can be something you eat like every other week. Um, since I'm hiding it usually in smaller amounts in foods, I do make an attempt to get some meal with hidden liver in once a week. And I usually okay. just hide it in a ground meat dish. So, um, like I said, there's recipes in real food for pregnancy for meatloaf. That's like my kid's favorite. So that's an easy one. Um, chili. I did a bolognese yeah. sauce the other day that has liver. I don't have a recipe for that in the book, but it's, it follows the same principles, make a bolognese sauce add a cube of, of <laughs> liver pate to the dish and really nobody notices it. Um, it doesn't change pie, the flavor? Meatballs. To me, I think it just enhances the flavor of the meat. Like it adds an additional meatiness. Okay. Yeah. Um, some people who are really sensitive, actually I have a pretty sensitive palate, which people are surprised to hear. Um, but I'm pretty picky with like what I think is palatable or not. Um, <laughs> but some people find it like really metallic which is probably a sign that you just need to like ease up on the amount you're using. So like three ounces per pound of meat is a good place to start. We can get away with a little more because we're more used to the flavor, but it's funny. I made a a meatloaf one time that didn't have any liver in it. And we, we all agreed, like it just didn't have the same depth of flavor. My husband's like, this tastes kind of anemic, which is (laughs) sort of a perfect (laughs) description of it you know um yeah and this week you posted um some a breakfast and I think most people would be surprised when they saw what you're eating for breakfast (laughs) um is is that typical um something that you would eat and your family would eat on a you know, regular. Are you day. talking about the chorizo with? The- yeah, the ch- that looked so good. The chorizo uh, mash with eggs and. Yeah, I mean, we we really vary it up. Um, oftentimes, there's eggs. Although my husband is like, he'll do eggs every single day and like never get tired of them. My palate gets tired of the same thing over and over. Mm-hmm. So yeah, mine too. I do probably do eggs. Um, it depends on the week, you know four or five days a week. And then other days I might do something different. That's like a non-egg breakfast. So maybe like a Greek yogurt with berries and nuts or a, um, I did like smoked salmon on 
sourdough. I do homemade sourdough and cream cheese. Um, so that was breakfast another day. Sometimes it's leftover dinner. I, I actually really like leftovers for breakfast. So if there's a bunch of leftovers of something that need to be used up, I'm happy to eat that for breakfast instead of doing eggs every single day. So I mix it up. Um, but in terms of like the general uh, nutritional breakdown of that meal, yeah. So, you know, it's been a long long, long journey nutritionally for me, as many people who go into the nutrition field, you usually have some baseline interest in it and are, are, you know, you just want to be the healthiest you could be. Right. So I started out vegetarian. I was vegetarian before (laughs) I went to um, nutrition school. And, um, really that was probably the worst diet for me, even though I did everything super healthy, everything organic and, you know, beans, like soaked sprouted bean soup with kale and tempeh and (laughs) not overboard on the soy. And I really made an attempt to do that well. And it just definitely does not work for my biochemistry. So I was really fortunate to come across some of the ancestral nutrition teachings pretty early on because I was able to have that in the back of my mind as I was going through my nutrition training, which as a dietitian, you're really taught, you know, the conventional guidelines and, and that's about it. Right. Um, but yeah, for years and years, I was like an oatmeal for breakfast person. Mm. I would do my, um, my steel cut oaks, oats that I soaked overnight. And it, it, I don't think it ever really worked that well for me, but it, you know, it, in my mind, it was the healthy thing to do. So I kept doing it, but I was like, chronically hypoglycemic, just like, you know, blood sugar, blood sugar crashes where I'd be so hungry and so tired and always need to eat and, um, really understanding blood sugar fluctuations more, which came from my work as a diabetes educator and with gestational diabetes completely transformed my, um, my understanding of food I mean, I had already through the ancestral teachings been more open to incorporating more fat um, and later more like meat and protein. But these, you know, it takes years to like deprogram from all the nutrition messages we've been sent our whole life. And so I'm at the point now where I'm pretty unapologetically like I need a decent amount of protein, particularly at breakfast. And then I am like happy camper. My mood is stable. My blood sugar is stable. I can clearly see this on the times that I've worn a continuous glucose monitor. Um, if you're looking for lab data to back it up, but I can feel it in my body and my mood. Um, I need protein in the morning. So that's often eggs or meats or yeah, something like that. Do these glycemic lows tie into cravings we have during our pregnancies or body just needing some more nutrients or, or I don't know. <laughs> they can. So sometimes cravings can be a sign of a nutritional gap in the diet, um, for sure. So even outside of pregnancy, the the physiological response to a blood sugar low, or just your blood sugar dropping very quickly from previously being high, even if it isn't necessarily at what you would call a low level, but it's heading that way. Mm -hmm. It's sort of an emergency signal in your body that like, oh my God, we're going to be starving get some food in your system to bring your blood sugar back up. And so you're looking for energy and your body is typically going to steer you towards sugar or carbohydrate rich foods um, and or caffeine, oftentimes both, right? A super sweet coffee. Think about the sorts of things that people go for 
mid-morning? Because a lot of people start their day with like a very small, not very protein or calorie rich breakfast mm-hmm. and then are starving by like 10 a.m. So it's true. what are the kind of things that people are just can't help themselves from when they stop for that mid-morning break? It's like a super sweetened coffee drink or a pastry or, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it's usually things that are really sugary. Um, and it's interesting, especially if you just look at that, that post from the other day, I asked people, you know, what, how do you feel different when you get enough protein or not enough? And it's pretty remarkable. The number of people who are like, yeah, I feel crazy hangry all the time (laughs) and I'm craving all the carbs and I just want to snack when I'm not getting enough protein. And so that's a, that's a big one that kind of fixes a lot of other issues. If you just get enough protein you're probably going to have fewer, fewer carbohydrate cravings because your blood sugar is more stable. You're also likely going to be, uh, sufficient in a number of micronutrients because a lot of micronutrients just happen to come hand in hand with whole food sources of protein. So it's less likely that you're going to have an issue with anemia, for example, Mm -hmm. because at least for your animal foods, you're going to have this nice, um, trifecta or even beyond of iron, copper, and B12, and also um, vitamin A. And those those all work together to help with red blood cell production. So they kind of like stop anemia before it starts or, or mm-hmm. help reverse it if it's the case. Um, so that's a big one. Um, but there can be non-nutrition you know, non-pregnancy specific reasons for cravings too. I mean, if you're just craving certain junk food, for example, I mean, the food companies very intentionally engineer their foods to be addictive. So we Mm -hmm. eat more of them and crave them. Um, So if it's for processed food, it could just be that like the chemicals or the combination of flavors in the food are just sort of hijacking your brain's reward system. (laughs) And it has nothing to do with pregnancy. It's just like, Doritos are addictive, you know, (laughs) So you have to kind of, it can be both. I'll just say that. Mm -hmm. Could you speak a little bit to giving into cravings when you're pregnant and what we we should be looking out for? So I I personally take a mindful eating approach to nutrition. I can talk micronutrients and numbers and all that stuff, but I, I really think if we take the time to slow down and tune into the signals our body is sending us and approach it from a point of curiosity. Like why am I craving this food? Could there be a reason behind it? So think for, for example, the blood sugar balance, think about emotionally how you're doing for the day. Has something triggered you and maybe you turn to food for comfort. Could there be a nutrient that's lacking perhaps? And maybe you want to go there is it a flavor combination that's reminding you of something from your past that you want? Um, And then within, you know, an understanding of that, make the best choice that's possible. So I I don't think we need to, and I even have a post on my site. Can you, does mindful eating work when you eat junk food um, that people might want to read? Because I, Mm. I think incorporating the mindful eating and actually we have data on this, by the way, the more you incorporate mindful eating, the less junk food people tend to eat. Um, sometimes when it's not entirely off limits, it doesn't become as big of a reward to indulge, Mm, but second to that, 
when you're really tuned into how your body feels after foods, if you identify that you feel horrible after eating something, <laughs> it might be the mindful choice and the kind choice to your body to not eat that food and then to find something that would fill that same flavor, texture, whatever requirement thing that you're looking for, right? So mm. a good example, personally for me, was um, first trimester nausea. And by the way, nausea and food cravings often go hand in hand. And the nausea phase is like, just can be so challenging. So my heart goes out to anybody who's in the first trimester right now or, or struggling with nausea. Um, but for me, like sour, sour, sweet kind of combination foods seem to be helpful. And I remember being at the grocery store and looking at just a package of like sour gummy worms or something, <laughs> being like, ah, oh, that sounds like kind of good, but you know, I have a long, I've, you know, been doing this mindful eating thing for a long time. And so I'm like, God, I usually feel like crap when I eat sour gummy worms. And then you look at the ingredients in the back and it's like all these chemical food dyes. It's just like, oh man, could I, could I like do something else? So I started thinking in my head, like what would be sour and sweet that might, you know, offer the same thing. And, um, I came to tart dried tart cherries. They're like a similar sort of gummy texture and they're sweet and sour, but it's just dried cherries. And sometimes it's dried cherries with a little bit of sugar, but like, mm -hmm. you know, at least you're getting some nutrition in there and not all the food dies. Right. So I would do dried tart cherries combined with um, salted cashews, which gave that nice salty sweet combination, getting a little protein and satiety from the cashews, but sort of getting that craving for the sweet and sour from the dried cherries. And so that was, that, that worked for me that satisfied the craving and didn't leave me feeling like garbage. So it was a win-win. And there's often these same sorts of things that you can use for virtually, you know, any different food. Are you craving chips? Okay. Can you find some type of chips that's made with like a better quality oil, for example? Mm. Um, just those sorts of things where you start looking, you know, ingredient wise, could we could we one up this from whatever the like processed version is? I mean, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. And if you really need the food, like I'm, I think it's okay to eat the food and then yeah, check exactly. in with yourself and see how you feel. I like that you're listening to your body. You're saying, okay, this is what you're looking for, but it's not just about going straight to the chips, but saying what aspect of it or can I find a healthier version? I think that's something we could apply whether we're pregnant or not. And it's it's really helpful information. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's really Thank helpful, you. you know, postpartum when you're all stressed out with, with kids. And <laughs> I had to do a check-in. I remember with my first, I don't remember how far out postpartum I was, but, you know, when you finally get them down for your nap and you're like... I can breathe. And there's like a thousand things you need to do. And you run through that to-do list in your head. And what should I do? And, well, maybe I want to go eat this, whatever food that I've been like trying not to have out. Cause I don't want yes. my toddler eating this sugary thing. So <laughs> exactly. It became like a default of like, okay, he went down for his nap. Great. I'll like go to the pantry and have whatever the sweet thing is, even if I didn't want a sweet, right? So I had to <laughs> But it's like a reward. Yes. I, I made it to the afternoon. I can exactly. have a piece of cake. <laughs> and that's sort of like, that's like, that's an emotional trigger that's yeah. leading you to the food. But I had to kind of, you know, weeks and weeks of this going by, I checked in finally and I was like, you know, I remember I was eating the thing, mindlessly eating it, right? Because it's just like, oh, I get my break. I can eat the thing. Yeah. And then thinking, <laughs> 
I don't even like the way this tastes. Like, I don't even want, I don't even remember what it was, probably chocolate. Like, I don't even want chocolate right now. I'd actually prefer something that's salty. Like, mm. or I'm not even hungry. Like, why did I go to the pantry? <laughs> and it, I sort of made that connection, like, oh, of course, it's like my reward for getting the nap to happen. Like, <laughs> exactly. This sweet thing. But if I don't want the sweet thing, why am I going to the pantry to get mm. the thing? I mean, yeah. Uh, sounds off like something that we would do also in the evening, maybe not with chocolate, but with wine mm-hmm. or with some other reward. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any experience with that? Do you, I know, I know myself over the, over the last year, I've tried to cut out that six o'clock glass of wine when you feel like it's total chaos in the house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what can I replace the wine with? You know, that, I feel, uh, I feel satisfies. the same or similarly about alcohol as I do with um, caffeine. Like, I feel like they are technically there, like as drugs. I mean, arguably they're drugs. Um, they have like bioactive psychoactive properties that are useful at certain times, but I try not to become dependent on them. And I say that as a person, I don't drink coffee, but I drink tea. So I am a person who gets caffeine in the morning and I like the ritual of that is really nice. And I have no problem with, you know, the coffee or tea, thing. Um, arguably same goes with alcohol. I mean, it, it's sometimes it's really nice. Um, I, I will say for myself, I've also been sort of consciously drinking less. And I guess this also comes down to a mindful eating thing where I just feel, uh, you know, it's harder for me to focus and it also interrupts my sleep. Um, so for me, it's hard cider. I really like hard cider. I think it's delicious. If it's like a really dry, like super crisp hard cider, I think that's like fantastic. But I, I don't feel super well if it becomes an every evening sort of activity. Um, so I'm not really regimented where I like, I only have it this day and that's it. I just, I just end up having less. Um, so, you know, sometimes I'll just split one with my husband instead of having the whole one to myself, he has better alcohol tolerance than me. So it's like half glass, I get the enjoyment of the bubbles and the flavor and sort of the relaxing quality of alcohol, you know, it kind of just lets you cool down a bit. Um, (laughs) But without having so much that like my body feels sluggish the next day, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, So yeah, I think we just need to look at those, those foods as like, these are, these are like tools that you can pull out when you really need them. I mean, when you've had like a really stressful day, sometimes it's really nice to have (laughs) a glass of wine or a cider or something like that. I don't think that's a problem unless it just becomes an automatic default day in and day out. And you're noticing not so great consequences. Um, So yeah, for me, I I just kind of opt to do not very often, but Mm -hmm. I enjoy it when I have it. Can we touch upon a bit of your research and uh, on gestational diabetes, just so that if somebody's listening and they just got pregnant or they're trying to get pregnant, they might, you know, is there something that you could or some advice in terms of trying to um, prevent it from happening? Sure. So gestational diabetes is a is a bit tricky in, in that we don't have a 100% guaranteed, if you do X, Y, Z, you are guaranteed not to have gestational diabetes. There are so many different factors that can play into your risk or 
or propensity for developing it. And some of those things are in our control and some of them aren't within our control. So I always like to be really upfront about that. Mm -hmm. For example, if there's a family history of, especially a strong family history of diabetes or your own mom had some form of diabetes during her pregnancy, that can impact the development of your pancreas and affect your body's chances of being able to 100% manage blood sugar without some sort of dietary lifestyle changes or medication potentially. So I'm glad you addressed that because maybe some moms who ended up with the diagnosis of gestational diabetes might feel that it's all on them, but it's uh good to know that there's a genetic component to it. It's not always. There's so many potential things that can go into it. That's just one. Um, But in terms of the things that are more in your control, and I'm going to start preconception, we do have pretty strong data on preconception activity levels, um, as well as preconception weight, and in addition, rate of weight gain during pregnancy. All of those things definitely impact um, the, the risk of GD. So just by default, exercise is a way that your body uses up sugar from your bloodstream. It needs energy to fuel your muscles. And it generally, um, unless you're in a fasted state is pulling that from glucose, it's using up sugar to burn off for your exercise. And as you build up muscle mass, your body becomes, it, it burns more calories and burns more sugar because your muscle mass burns more energy. And so if you're active preconception, that is a definitely, um, a, a way you can reduce your risk um, of gestational diabetes during pregnancy, particularly if you remain active during pregnancy, there's some studies showing up to almost a 70% reduced risk of gestational diabetes if you're active. And you don't have to be like a CrossFitter or anything. I mean, just like (laughs) daily walks, just like moving your body in any way, it doesn't have to be extreme, um, is really beneficial. I think that um, it was, I think the reduced risk was 69% in that study and the activity levels were I believe, I hope I'm quoting this right. I think it was three times a week for 60 minutes. So that's not super high. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as weight, so it's sort of like the opposite of activity levels in that the more weight your body has to carry around, generally the more insulin resistant your system is. So it's like your pancreas has to produce more insulin to get the same reduction in blood sugar um, as somebody who ha- is carrying less weight. Um, this is something where if you're already pregnant, like, just please don't stress about it and worry about it. Cause we can't rewind the clock and reverse anything preconception, but I can tell you just so many cases in my own clinical experience of people like say losing weight between pregnancies and they get pregnant like a second time, say they had gestational diabetes before and they avoid it like the next mm-hmm. time because they're starting maybe 20 pounds lighter Mm -hmm. than they were when they conceived their first, it does make a big difference. And that's part of the reason just as pregnancy progresses, insulin resistance and thus blood sugar management often gets more challenging is because we're naturally gaining weight during the pregnancy, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. if we can just start at a slightly lower place, then that just helps our, it gives our pancreas a little bit of a rest. Mm -hmm. Um, Another one would be your nutrient intake. So we have data showing 
high glycemic carbohydrates. So carbohydrates that raise our blood sugar really rapidly, like sugar, juice, um, white sugar. I guess I already said sugar. So it's the same thing. Sugar sweetened beverages, um, white bread. There's also some other studies on fast food Mm -hmm. showing that consumption of those is associated with a later development of gestational diabetes, whereas consumption of lower glycemic foods like nuts, for example, is tied to reduced risk. Mm -hmm. And this kind of comes down to, again, pretty similar principles, like how much strain are we putting on our poor pancreas to Mm -hmm. pump out insulin? Like the more you eat high glycemic foods and in larger quantities, the greater and more frequent our blood sugar spikes are going to be. And the greater and more frequent our pancreas's insulin production needs to be to match that, right? So if you Mm -hmm. just eat, you know, healthier sources of carbohydrates are fruits and vegetables and legumes. And if you're doing grains, choosing whole grains, but also just being mindful of our portion sizes of grains um, and then pairing those foods with protein rich foods and foods that naturally contain fat, you just minimize those blood sugar spikes, you just blunt them. And then your pancreas doesn't have to work so hard Hmm. because pregnancy is a huge stress test on your pancreas and your blood sugar regulation system. Um, So if we can just do everything in our power to be kind to it, you know, we move our muscles. So they're using more glucose and we mitigate our blood sugar spikes by not going crazy on the high carb sugar foods. You're well on your way to um, you know, reducing your risk of, of that developing. And then, you know, if it does develop, it's also not the end of the world. It's not entirely preventable in all cases, and it's totally manageable. Um, the majority of cases with, with diet and lifestyle, um, if, if the diet and lifestyle advice they're given is actually um, congruous with the diagnosis, of course. I love how, you know, part of a big part of our discussion today when we're talking about nutrients and micronutrients led back to to meat, <laughs> because it's it's something that we often don't think about. We think we talk about the greens and the vegetables and the fruits. We, we know that, but then we don't often talk about the importance of meat. But what happens now if somebody's listening and saying, well, I'm either vegetarian or I'm vegan. How do I make sure that I'm getting enough of those nutrients and those micronutrients for my baby? Yeah. So that's a good question. Um, I have a post on my site called vegetarian diet and pregnancy nutrients of concern. And um, that might be a helpful post for folks to read. There's also a section at the end of chapter three of real food for pregnancy on nutritional challenges of a vegetarian diet going nutrient by nutrient, looking at what things you want to have on your radar. the short answer of it is we just need to be much more educated around nutrition if we're going to go that route. Mm-hmm. I think a vegetarian diet is certainly possible to meet at least the majority of your nutrient needs from food alone. It becomes significantly more challenging on a vegan diet, one that entirely eliminates animal foods, including um, eggs and dairy products. Mm. So that you would become much more significantly reliant on supplements. Um, And that kind of raises some, you know, a bit of an ethical dilemma for me in that I think when you dive into the guidelines and how they're set and where our gaps are and like how strong is the evidence for the recommended daily allowance of X nutrient being at 
X level. And you see there's like, I mean, it's really a best guess. Then, and then you have another nutrient, say like vitamin B12. We now know the requirements for B12 are set too low by a factor of three at minimum. So if you're aiming for 100% of the RDA for B12 in pregnancy, you're getting two thirds less than you actually need to avoid significant deficiency. It just becomes, to me, much more ethically challenging to endorse a vegan diet because I don't know for sure that even if I'm supplementing you with the RDA of all the nutrients that you're actually covered. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I don't know that that's going to be enough. And then you combine that with the information we have on nutrient synergy. So say choline and DHA. DHA is only found in animal foods with the exception of algae-based DHA supplements. Choline, like I said, is found in significantly higher concentrations in animal foods, although it is in plant foods. Um, although I've never seen a vegan meal plan that provides sufficient amounts that still provides less than half of what the optimal levels, um, are now we're seeing are playing out, but nonetheless, just for example's sake, mm -hmm. choline and DHA, we now know work hand in hand. So choline assists DHA, um, in its transfer across the placenta and DHA incorporation to the fetal brain. Um, both choline and DHA are really vital to fetal brain development and um, vision development. And these are like irreversibly important times of development where if you're lacking in these, a baby never makes up for it later mm -hmm. on entirely. There's like catch up that can happen. But like if things are missing in the first 1000 days of development from conception to about age two, there's irreversible periods of it's kind of like puberty, right? Where it's like, if you mess around with puberty, like there's no redoing puberty. It's like, it's a yeah. one shot deal. Mm. And so that's where I get a little bit concerned. Cause I can be like, okay, well, we'll just supplement with sunflower lecithin to get your choline, which I would recommend in the case of a vegan diet, you want to get your choline in somehow, and then we'll add the algae-based DHA. How do I know that those two things from different sources are going to interact in the right way. How do I know that I got the proportions right? What if we supplement with them at different times of day? Like, mm. I don't know, because these are mm. questions that aren't actually of concern on an omnivorous diet because choline and DHA come packaged together mm. in DHA rich foods. They come packaged together in salmon. They come pack packaged together in egg yolks. And it's, you don't have to worry about it. Mm. You see? Um, yeah. same thing for like iron, right? So iron in animal foods is in the heme form and non-animal foods is a non-heme form. Heme iron absorption is anywhere from 25 to 40% of what you consume where non-heme iron is at best two to 13%, but it's usually closer to like the 2% range. So mm. even if you're taking in a significant amount of iron, and by the way, the iron requirements are higher for people who are vegetarian for this reason. We still don't have guarantee that you're absorbing anywhere close to the amount from the heme iron, mm. right? I just like, it's in a different form that your body doesn't respond to as well. So like, there's a, I, I would just want to be very careful with like monitoring. I mean, I would be going to a functional medicine doctor and like monitoring micronutrient levels in pregnancy. Like I'd yeah. be monitoring my B12 levels. I'd be looking at my um, omega-3 fat levels. I'd be looking at some of these nutrients of concern. Um, but it, yeah, it's, 
it's hard to know because we we don't necessarily have all the data on all the nutrients and we don't yet understand how everything functions together. Yeah. Um, so I don't have a perfect answer. It's it's a big question mark. I think that's a really good point is that we don't have all the answers. And sometimes when we're taking out these nutrients, it's it's we think that we're doing something good, but we don't necessarily know the consequences. I just did a, a quick search and it seems like there are studies that are starting to come out actually comparing vegan diets during pregnancy. So one that um, was published in 2020 showing a smaller for gestational age for newborns in vegan. So yeah, there's several, there's several studies. I mean, it's a, it's a bit challenging because um, a lot of times they're, they're epidemiological studies. I actually do know the one that you're talking about though, the small mm-hmm. for gestational age. And um, it's always challenging because I, I don't think we yet have an actual clinical trial. Like you can't force anybody to follow a certain way of eating. So it's usually people who have self-selected one way mm. of eating or another, or it's looking yeah. at um, outcomes over time, retrospectively of what people did consume and then looking at the outcomes. And because people who tend to choose a plant-based diet are health conscious, sometimes they're making significantly more health conscious choices in other areas of their life that someone who's eating red meat, God, they must know nothing about nutrition. So like maybe they're drinking alcohol and smoking cigarettes during their pregnancy, or maybe their red meat is in the form of a McDonald's hamburger (laughs) between a white flour bun washed down with a large Coke. You know what I mean? So it becomes kind of difficult. Um, And then in addition to that, uh, some of the studies we have are looking at countries where just there's either food scarcity or meat is not available. And so it's not just a matter of a, it's very different than like a, a wealthy woman in the United States choosing a vegetarian diet that's fortified with B12 and she's taking her algae-based DHA and doing all the things versus somebody in rural Bangladesh mm-hmm. um, who just doesn't have, they just don't have access to meat and it's almost not by choice. They would eat it if they could get it. Um, yeah. But the small for gestational age studies are, it's pretty interesting because this goes beyond even a lot of the stuff I've written in my books or blogs, but I'm diving deeper into the research on protein and specific amino acids right now. And there's a fair amount of amino acids that wouldn't necessarily qualify as like essential, meaning like must be obtained from the diet amino acids that are only found in animal foods. And some of them, for example, taurine and glycine, now we're having um, more data showing their importance in fetal growth. So it's like, can the body get by and borrow from mom's tissues and stores to grow a baby? Like, yes, um, that can happen. Is it optimal? That's up for debate. Um, and how about mom? Like we're, we give everything to, yeah. to the baby, the baby will survive, but we, we need yeah. to also appreciate that as we're, we're having, when we're pregnant and when we're breastfeeding, that there's so much that's going to our baby that we need to be supplementing ourselves too. Yep. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's challenging because you can end up depleted postpartum. Um, baby can end up depleted. So there's, a there's some interesting research on vitamin B12 in particular, that would absolutely be one to supplement with, um, if you're vegan or vegetarian where B12 deficiency present during pregnancy, um, predicts 
babies B12 deficiency later in infancy, um, even if the mother is supplementing with B12 while nursing, which is interesting. Um, but B12 is a very, if we talk about that, you know, first thousand days of importance for neurodevelopment, that is one that is actually really, really dire. And I have highlighted some studies on this on my Instagram a long time ago when I had more time to moderate comments because sometimes getting into these conversations um, brings in a lot of people who feel very strongly mm-hmm. um, for a vegan diet in pregnancy. But nonetheless, there was a case study I'd posted about, might have been several years ago now, of a mother who was following a vegan diet during pregnancy. She was taking a prenatal that had 100% of the RDA for B12. She, like most mothers, discontinued taking her prenatal postpartum and was exclusively breastfeeding. And her baby, um, as happens when you have a B12 deficiency, um, suddenly like stopped showing signs of development, like the development kind of like paused, you know, was reaching milestones earlier on. But then I think it was like four or five months in, which is typically when B12 stores can become depleted, stopped that continued rate of development and started regressing with development. So like baby was previously able to roll over and stopped rolling over. Baby was previously making eye contact, stopped making eye contact. Um, And it was found that both mother and baby had severe B12 deficiency. They, you know, supplemented both, corrected the B12 deficiency, but even at a year follow-up, the baby had not, like, despite fixing the B12 deficiency, the the baby's brain development was not where it should be. Um, And in addition, by, like, MRI of the nervous system, the demyelination, so, like, if you have a B12 deficiency, you start losing the, like, protective coating you have around your nerves called myelin that had not fully recovered. And there was still brain shrinkage. I mean, there was literal like confirmed by MRI cerebral atrophy, like the baby's brain was shrinking instead of growing. And even when you, you know, corrected for the B12 deficiency, that was not corrected for. So it raises a lot of questions because it's known that there's just this very delicate and important period of brain development that you get a one-shot deal at. You can't, can't go back and redo it again. Um, it, for me, it also raises questions. Was it just B12 deficiency or what if you also co-supplemented choline, for example, like, you know, again, since we don't know, like the B12 one is a very easy one to identify as being a problem, but we don't really routinely, Hey, we don't routinely run that one, but do we have all the lab tests to, run all these separate micronutrient deficiencies on mothers or babies or know how much to co-supplement with to like fix the issue. I I don't know. We don't know. So for me, it feels like a very um, scary choice when we just don't know what can happen, but we do know the risks. Um, So it's been interesting. I mean, they came out with guidelines on nutrition for infants and young children, and they actually did not include a vegan option. And one of the nutrients they called out was choline specifically. So they were really encouraging um, egg yolk consumption for young babies. And there was a big uproar about it um, in among practitioners who favor plant-based and vegan diets 
um, citing that oh, you can get choline from other foods. But, you know, as, as a mother to two kids, one of which is like a year and a half old, you know, I can get her to eat an egg and then she's getting all, basically all her choline needs for the entire day in a one shot go. Or I can try to get her to eat two cups of beans <laughs> to get the same <laughs> amount of choline. It, like, it's just not going to happen. I mean, yeah, maybe if we work. start fortifying or supplementing <laughs> vegan foods with it, then that becomes a different story. But like, it just becomes unrealistic um, mm. for the quantity of food needed, especially for a tiny little, tiny little toddler who might be in a weird eating phase where they only eat three bites at a meal and then they're off exactly. running around doing whatever they're doing. <laughs> yeah. I'm placing myself in the shoes of the listeners right now. And if I, I am a pregnant woman and I'm, I'm listening to this, there are two things. I think I would have two questions. First, do I panic? <laughs> Because how do I know if I'm getting enough? And I know we all know that, especially with our first, we, yeah. we might panic about lots of things and I so I'd like to have that conversation before we, we finish off and then the second question would be give me like your top five foods that if I were pregnant right now I could eat <laughs> and and say like you know I'm at least I know I'm having this and and everything will be fine <laughs> yeah so it's hard because I almost have to get in the weeds to get people to actually listen. Does this make sense? Like if you just come across <laughs> and give the basic advice and nobody listens to you, especially if it's in contrast, at least to some degree to the conventional guidelines, it's like, mm -hmm. why is this lady why? telling me to eat liver? Yeah. <laughs> what? Like, I'm not going to listen to this lady. And then you understand like, oh my God, the, this percentage of pregnant women are not getting enough of this nutrient. And this is the best food source that, you know, Got it. Um, I yeah. kind of have to get into that stuff, but it, it doesn't really need to be all that complicated. And one of the things that I think I kind of already said tends to make a big difference is if you just get enough protein in a lot and, and protein from a variety of foods. And like I said, from my opinion, that does include some animal-based foods. If at the very least, that is just whole fat dairy and eggs with the yolks. Again, you'll be well on your way to meeting most of your nutrient needs. If you at the very least include those, even if that's your only animal source um, protein. And is there a, a line as well as having too much protein in your day? There is, however, you just, it's just almost physically impossible to me. Like I've never had a single client who's gone overboard on protein because okay. it is mm. so satiating. It's so filling. Like think of if you sit down to a meal that has like steak or chicken or something, like you get to the point where you're just like, I don't think I can take another True. bite. <laughs> um, uh, whereas if you're like, my husband. Yeah. Oh. oh, yeah. <laughs> Men can sometimes really pack it in. And maybe that's <laughs> maybe that's somewhat of a nod to the mindful eating thing as well. But like yeah. comparatively, if you were to do like calorie to calorie, like steak or chicken to like a pasta dinner, I'm gonna bet you could way overeat on that pasta dinner mm -hmm. before you actually fill up. There's something called this like protein leverage hypothesis where you're just like, if you just get most of your protein needs met, like you're very unlikely to overeat on, on other things. So it's theoretically possible, but it's very uncommon. And the research right now is showing us that you really need a lot 
more protein than we previously thought. So, um, and I think you had addressed, I don't know if it was on Instagram, but something about uh, women taking in, not taking in enough protein. I think it was the third trimester you had mentioned. Uh, yeah, God, I'd have to pull up the research brief, which is kind of embarrassing because I just posted this like this week, but, um, I'll pull it up. So yeah, this was like a, a looking at a nationally representative survey of pregnant women in the United States by trimester and 40% of mothers in the second trimester did not consume optimal amounts of protein and 67% of third trimester mothers did not consume enough. So really, you know, it gets a bit convoluted when you're talking about protein because there's different ways to measure accuracy. Are we looking at a gram amount? Are we looking at a gram per amount of body weight? Are we looking at a percentage of calories? But if we're just looking at sort of a standard gram amount, for most people getting around 100 grams at a minimum in like the latter half of pregnancy would Mm -hmm. be optimal. And there's Mm -hmm. going to be variation in this depending on if you're smaller or larger or active or not or whatever. But if you just aim for around 100 grams, you're pretty well on your way to getting enough protein. That greatly stabilizes your blood sugar levels. That meets much of your micronutrient needs for a lot of these tricky nutrients. You'll be much closer on your way to meeting your choline requirements, B12, iron, zinc, vitamin B6, selenium. I mean, you could just go on and on and on list of nutrients that you're probably meeting or close to meeting from food alone. So that's huge. Get enough protein. For most people, that's going to be aiming for like 20 to 30 grams per meal. So like an ounce of meat is about seven grams of protein. So you do the math. It doesn't all have to be meat. You get smaller amounts of protein in a variety of foods. But if you want to like add it up on a food tracking app for a couple of days to see where you're at, Notice how you feel better or worse on the days you eat more or less protein. If you just do that and then fill in the gaps of the rest of your diet with mm. however, whatever amount of carbohydrates make you feel good, try to get some colorful fruits and vegetables in your world, drink enough water, don't restrict your salt intake. Uh, you're, you'll probably meet most of your nutrient needs in pregnancy. Um, as far as like a couple foods that I think can be really helpful. I've already mentioned eggs. They're very helpful for a variety of reasons. They're very, very filling. They're a very convenient breakfast option. Um, so eggs, big one. We've already talked about liver. I don't know if I need to belabor the liver thing anymore, <laughs> but if it's something you can fit in once a week, once every other week, again, a huge boost to your micronutrient intake. Some form of seafood, I think, is very important for a lot of reasons. We have the specific omega-3s that are found in seafood. Um, We also have, that's like our major dietary source of iodine, which is another nutrient for a baby's brain development. And again, you're getting another source of protein. So if you can find some type of seafood to have at least every once in a while, that's a huge boost to your to your nutrient stores. Mm. Um, so salmon is a great one. Sardines, if you like them, uh, occasional serving of tuna is just fine. It's a bit of a higher mercury fish, so you don't want to have a ton of it, but it's still even by FDA guidelines, permissible to have some, um, 
oysters, clams, mussels, if you're at all into those types of shellfish, they're extremely, extremely nutrient dense. That's really helpful to have once a week if you like them. That's interesting. I thought I had, I, I don't know, here in, in Montreal, we have a guide that we receive when we get pregnant. I thought those were excluded. But maybe again, so sometimes things change. So exclude raw shellfish because they are a food safety risk. So like in the US anyways, three quarters of food foodborne illness outbreaks from seafood are specifically from raw shellfish. Okay, <laughs> so yeah. you, if you're doing raw, by the way, like definitely know your source and use yeah. your nose and be careful. Um, <laughs> or you might just want to opt for the cooked ones, um, okay. or they have canned ones that would be fine. But I think they're usually on the no list for the food safety concerns. Okay. Um, there is some argument about like trace levels of contaminants, um, that can be in shellfish, but you can literally argue that same point for everything. You can argue arsenic for rice. You can, I mean, the oh, list yeah. is never yeah. ending. Right. Mm. But as far, I think the nutritional, um, trade-offs are far outweigh it. So it's, they are an extremely rich source of iron, B12, zinc, selenium, iodine. They also have DHA. They're just, they're almost on par with organ meats for nutrient density. So if mm. you like shellfish and want to have them every once in a while, um, you can do so, you could do so safely. And that's really beneficial. Um, I'm trying to remember what else, like I want to mention, but you know, your fruits and vegetables, dairy products, if you like them, I mean, eat your carbohydrates to like the level where you're satisfied, but not having huge blood sugar spikes. I think you mentioned somewhere about no naked carbs. Is that something you could bring up just for a second? Yeah. So from the perspective of like combining foods in mm -hmm. terms of maintaining better blood sugar balance, if you eat just carbohydrate foods on their own, which I call naked carbs, you're going to expect a higher blood sugar, a quicker rise in your blood sugar and also a higher spike than if you you consumed that same amount of carbohydrate with something else that has fat and protein. So yeah, that's apple, made a big difference. It makes a big, big difference. I'm telling you, like those two things, eat enough protein, no naked carbs, which yeah. kind of go hand in hand. You've like solved 95% of people's nutritional woes and pregnancy complaints. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, mean, like, mm -hmm. it, I go into all this complexity, but it's also can be really simple. Um, so if you have an apple mm. and you combine it with almond butter or peanut butter or a handful of nuts or something like that, you, you won't have as big of a blood sugar spike. Your, your blood sugar response will be a bit blunted. So instead of going up a huge roller coaster and crashing down, you just kind of do this little gentle bump and, you know, you won't be hangry too quickly. I love how your book and all this information, you know, you, you do target women during pregnancy, but this is something that we could apply post-pregnancy and throughout our lives and with our children. Yeah, yeah, it's vital postpartum. We can talk forever on postpartum nutrition and, you know, your nutrient needs are actually higher early postpartum than they are during pregnancy. So this absolutely applies and applies even more so during that period of time. And it's also helpful for the whole family. So, yeah. you know, I, I often have people asking me like, well, what do you feed the family or what did you do preconception <laughs> or what do you do postpartum or can you write a book about nutrition for 
fill in the blank. Menopause. Menopause <laughs> later in life. And I'm like, you know, no. we have a lot of different research, but it would probably come to a lot of similar conclusions. Mm. And that, you know, the same things that you eat, you know, preconception that optimize your hormonal health and menstrual cycle health enhance your chances of conceiving and carrying a pregnancy to term with a lower risk of complications and ensure you're more nutrient replete heading into postpartum. So you're hopefully less depleted and easier to rebuild those nutrient stores. And that supports your transfer of nutrients from mother via breast milk. And Mm. it supports toddlers brain development and that support you know it's all kind of the same thing I I sometimes use the hashtag real food is real food because (laughs) we can make some little tweaks you know certain amounts of things will need to be more during this time and certainly the nausea phase in pregnancy is hopefully something that won't reoccur outside of pregnancy like there's different little considerations at these at these time points and picky eating and toddlerhood and all that Um, but a lot of the advice really stays the same. I mean, I also try, although it's not always successful with the kids to do no naked carbs, you know? So, Mm -hmm. okay, you really want this piece of fruit. Let's put out some peanut butter for you to dip it into things like that. Oh, you really want, I don't know what is some dessert or something. Let's, let's have some dinner first. Let's get some protein in you first, and then we can have a treat later. (laughs) It's like (laughs) the same things that help us adults, you know, exactly accountable. You could find um, chapter one on Lily's website of her book, you can download it for free. And that'll give you a really good taste of all the information you could find in her book. Uh, Lily, can you guide us and let us know where else we can find you and and your website and your social media? Sure. Yeah. So my main website is lilynicholsrdn.com. And so that'll link out to the free chapter download of Real Food for Pregnancy for people who want to see that nutrient comparison, mm-hmm. by the way, that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, it has those two meal plans side by side. And so, uh, and the nutritional analysis of them. So people seem to really enjoy that because it just shows you the information in black and white. Exactly. Um, that's also my blog is also on the website. It links out to my books and where you can buy those. Um, I recently launched a book shop where I'm selling real food for pregnancy directly, paperback and ebook, as well as a new e-cookbook uh, that you can check out that has more recipes to accompany either of my books. It's 30 new recipes that aren't found in either one. Hmm. And uh, for those in the early part of pregnancy, 12 out of 30 are nausea friendly so might be helpful nice. yeah social media wise you can find me mostly these days on instagram and my handle is the same as my website which is at lily nichols rdn and i don't know there's some other resources on my site there's some freebies i have a online course on gestational diabetes if that's relevant to you for practitioners i teach webinars at the women's health nutrition academy um, that are a little higher level than my other content. And yeah, I could keep going, but (laughs) you'll find it all on my website. Find her, find her. I love all your posts. They're, they're very inspiring to get us cooking and the research you do is just amazing. You just, uh, I don't know how you find time, but you, you dig out all the sources and you give everyone all the information they need to see. Well, thank you. I'm glad it's 
helpful. And the only way I find time is childcare, by the way. So I'm not <laughs> <super> a woman. <laughs> yeah. Some things get done during the nap time of the one child who still naps. But for the most part, third-party help is necessary to accomplish anything these days. So full <laughs> disclosure. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lily. Thank you.